0: you are standing in a room full of doors and being a highly kind of interested, curious, creative person, you want to know what's behind every door. You want to open every door and solve the problem that's behind every door. And I'm standing behind you and I'm saying, no, you need to pick one door, open it up, walk through it, and never ever look back. And you think that on the other side of that door is just one, long, dimly lit, boring gray hallway where surely you will suffocate from boredom. That's, what, that's your concern as a creative person. But that's not what's on the other side of that door. What's on the other side of that door is more doors. And I like to joke, not more door, more doors. More doors than you can ever imagine. You crawl into these niches, these crevasses, these tiny little holes, and they open up into these massive worlds like Narnia.
1: The Giant Thinker's Giant Thinker's Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives and giant thinkers. G'day Giants, Ram here. Welcome to episode number 59. Today we have the founder and CEO of Win Without Pitching, the sales training and coaching organization for creative professionals. He is also the author of the Win Without Pitching manifesto and the brand new book titled Pricing Creativity, a guide to profit beyond the billable hour. This man has taught me and many thousands of creative people and businesses around the world on how to build a lucrative client base without having to pitch ideas for free. Some of the topics we spoke about include how to best position our value in order to win business, how to command the high ground in the client versus creative relationship, his approach to proposals, his view on retainer clients, rules on pricing creativity, and so much more. If you're someone who is interested in moving from a vendor position to an expert practitioner position, then this is absolutely for you. Before we begin, I'd like to briefly mention an app that I use every single day that I know you'll love too. Now, if you're like me, you've found yourself with a continuously growing list of books that you want to read. Or worse, you've bought books and haven't touched them since purchasing them. You just haven't found the time to read them all, right? Well, I'm excited to let you know that our friends at Blinkist have solved our long list of must-reads dilemma once and for all. What if I told you that you could get the key learnings from the top four books you've been putting off reading in the time it would take you to finish this podcast? And I'm not talking about listening to audiobooks at three times their normal speed. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements so you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes all on your phone. I personally like to listen to Blinkist in the morning, usually while I'm having my breakfast, also when I'm on my way to the office. So for you, that might look like driving in the car riding a train, bus, or walking to work while listening. And the beauty is that you can listen during whatever time and place is most convenient to you. Now, the Blinkist library is massive, from timeless classics like Think and Grow Rich, to bestsellers like Robert Chialdini's book Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, and Tim Ferriss' The 4-Hour Workweek. In fact, All of Tim Ferriss's books are on Blinkist, including Tools of Titans. My personal recommendation is to check out Start With Why by Simon Sinek and The 7 Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from best-of lists, so you're always getting the most powerful ideas in a made-for-mobile format. Five million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time, and so can you. To kickstart you off, they have an extremely generous offer of 25% off for the Giant Thinkers listeners. If you head to giantthinkers.com slash blinkist, you can start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan when you join today. If you do decide to purchase the yearly plan to be completely upfront, it works out to be $5 a month. Not a week, a month. Massive value. Once again, that's giantthinkers.com slash Blinkist. Giantthinkers slash B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Head there to start your free trial or get your three months free off your yearly plan. And uh, the 25% off is automatically applied when you head to giantthinkers.com slash Blinkist. All let's dive straight in. I present to you the sharp and charismatic Blair Ends. Blair Ends, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast, mate. I'm so pumped to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm really well, Ram. Thank you.
0: It's my real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, we've been trying to tee this up for a little while now. Uh, for the audience, they uh, uh, might have heard of Blair Ends uh, as I heard of you the first time through Andrew Hoyne, uh, who is a mutual friend of ours, and and he's been on the Giant Thinkers podcast on episode number seven uh, a while ago now. That was in September 2015. So since that time, oh, wow. I've been doing a, a lot of reading about you and 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 the things that, uh, you know, that are out there, um, which we'll get to in a minute minute. This is all going to be great for all creatives and designers listening. First off, Blair, I have an icebreaker question for you. Yes. If you had to advise someone that was visiting Canada for the first time and only had 48 hours, where would you advise them to go and what three things should they do?
0: Well, Canada is such a big country as is Australia. So... That's a really tough one. You have to first um if you only had forty-eight hours, I would have you go to my favorite city, which is Vancouver. I'm which is the it's the main city in the province of British Columbia where I'm based. Now I'm in a little village in the mountains, nine hours from Vancouver, and still in the same province. Um, but I would have you go to Vancouver and I would have you stay downtown. It's a beautiful downtown. And I would have you stay downtown either at the, um, one of the Fairmont hotels. Fairmont's a chain that's based in Vancouver, I think, where they have four hotels in Vancouver, one at the airport, and three downtown, any of the three downtown. Probably the waterfront, although the Pacific Rim is the nicest one in Vancouver. I would have you rent a bike and ride around Stanley Park. And I would have you, the primary reason, it's a beautiful city to walk around and get out and do some stuff. I would have you do the Grouse Grind, which is a it's a hike it's like climbing granite stairs and it goes up to the top of this mountain and then you take a um uh what's a gondola down my knees would never make it down i'd have you do that and i would have you eat at so many primarily vancouver because it's one of the best restaurant cities in the world um i would have you eat at bow bay which is my favorite restaurant in vancouver and it's this uh Asian something fusion that's just, I, my mind is blown every time I'm, I'm there. And then and then after you eat at Bao Bay, go next door to the Kiefer Bar, both of these restaurants on Kiefer Street. Most incredible cocktails. I think that's probably more than three things, but that's, I would have you go to Vancouver, do the Gross grind, bike around Stanley Park, um, stay at one of the Fairmont hotels, go to Bao Bay and the Kiefer Bar.
1: salt You've sold me. Now I want to go to <laughs> Vancouver. <laughs> Very cock. Cool. Yeah, I, I just asked because I've never been to Canada and uh, heard so many amazing things. So uh there's uh you can't go wrong, right, when you ask a Canadian. So um but uh let's dive into your expertise, uh Blair. Where would you say your expertise lies?
0: Well, When Without Pitching, my business is a sales training, sales and new business development training organization for creative professionals. So I think the assumption would be that my, my expertise is in selling and it's, I don't see it that way. I really see my expertise as knowing the peculiarities of the creative mind that makes selling, pricing and negotiating difficult for creatives. That's my expertise.
1: Mm yeah love that and how did you kind of get there because i looked at your uh i guess you could call it you know your career history getting to to that point um can you take us a little bit back to your childhood how did you grow up and i guess yeah how did you fall into this space
0: Oh, my childhood. I don't know how far back you want to go. I grew up in the middle of Canada, um, in Winnipeg, Canada, and I stayed there until 20 years ago. Um, so until I was about 30. Um, and I kind of fell into advertising. I kind of stumbled through post secondary school. I was academically expelled from university. I went to play pool or billiards for a year. I went to community college, took a business program. You got
1: expelled.
0: Yeah, it's not as bad. I kind of make it maybe inflate <laughs> that a little bit. Um, there's a longer story there that we, we don't have time to tell, but sure. my marks were so low I needed written permission from the dean to get back for a second year, and I I, I uh, decided to spend that money on other things <laughs> instead of going back to university. I wasn't a very good student. Um, so eventually, I uh, uh, to cut to the chase a little bit, I uh, graduated from this business program, and I... I thought, um, I thought I wanted to go to work in public relations because before, when I was deciding to go d- into business, I, it was either journalism or business. And I didn't think I could make enough money as a journalist, so I chose uh, business. And then public relations seemed to be a hybrid of the two, so I applied for a job with a PR firm, and they didn't hire me, I came in second, and they, um, they said, uh, Uh, I forget what they said, but a little while later they called and said, Hey, we bought an ad agency. Do you want a job in advertising? So I said, yeah. Thinking I would I'd move from public relations into advertising and I I didn't I stayed in advertising I kind of I fell in love with it is probably too strong a term but I was really enamored with it because it was a great profession to be in when you're young mm. and then at some point as you age you realize uh, as as one of my early bosses said ah, it's just kids playing at business <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, yeah I stayed in advertising and then I ended up going to work for uh, I worked for a couple of the largest ad agencies in the world, and the first one is a really great experience, and the second one, I had a, um, I had a horrible boss, and she almost drove me out of the profession completely. Um, she fired me, so there's a recurring theme here, I get fired or expelled from school <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and as, as um, I decided I was going to move to this little village in British Columbia, my wife and I and our small family, and we're gonna raise kids, and. Um, and that's where we live now, in Caslo, British Columbia. And before I left, I, I got an offer um, to go work for this design firm that had also owned a sm- had a small advertising division. And um, for reasons I won't get into here, I went to do that for 20 months before we moved to Caslo. And it was a great experience. I, uh, experience. I loved the guy I worked for. He was a fantastic world-class designer. He gave me a lot of authority to run the remote office that I was running and it allowed me to kind of fall in love with the profession again, the creative profession, not so much advertising, but more designers. I, um, um, I love designers. I have a real affinity for designers. I still know a lot of ad people, but they're really quite different to me. Ad people want to spin a story. And a designer wants to solve the problem and save the world. And that's what I love about designers. They have this sensibility about them and they have this kind of greater consciousness about them, about what they do. Um, So they see themselves working on the bigger problems in the world. So I, yeah, I worked for this uh, company for uh, almost two years. And then eventually, we moved to this little remote mountain village. And, and Win Without Pitching was started because I needed to find a way to earn a living. And it was either by the fly fishing store, <laughs> the tackle shop, or open a consulting practice. And that's what I did.
1: Okay, very good context uh, for everyone. Uh, now, let's dive into Win Without Pitching. What does that mean to you?
0: Yeah, so um, winning without pitching means well. Let's start by defining a pitch. A pitch is a defined client-driven selection process, where the client um, lines you up against your peers in an effort to make this apples-to-apples comparison, and um, and judging you based on your similarities and differences. And in, in as part of that client-driven selection process, the client invites you um, to give your best, your most valuable product. You're thinking away for free as part of the uh, selection process. So you're invited to solve the client's problem as proof of your ability to solve the problem. You're invited, you're either told it's a requirement or it's implied to you that it's in your best interest to do so. So that's a pitch and winning without pitching, the name of the business in my first book, Win Without Pitching, is really the idea that you uh, command the high ground in the, um, client-designer relationship. You change how your services are bought and sold. So in the the pitch that I described, really the client sitting there with all the power because they see all of the different designers or design firms that they might hire, they see them all as similar. Therefore, they have the power in the relationship. The, The client's power does not come from his checkbook. It comes from the availability of substitutes, the alternative that he sees in his mind to hiring your firm. So. If your scene is meaningfully different, then you can't. You have no power to leverage to change how your services are bought and sold. At Win Without Pitching, we teach you how to number one gain power in the buy sell relationship, and then number two leverage that power, push back on a flawed selection process, not go along with what everything that the client says that you must do, and it's part of that selection process. Get them to change the rules in your favor. And then allow you to kind of win more business at higher margin, higher prices and lower cost of sale with you, with you positioned to do your best work, with you positioned not as the vendor. And that's kind of part of the fundamental problem here. When you're seen as having a lot of competitors, you're relegated to that vendor position. So we help you move from that vendor position to the expert practitioner position with the clients more likely to let you take the lead and, um, and uh yeah follow you as you kind of describe the arc through the sale that makes more sense for both parties
1: yeah very cool um and you know you don't even have to be a designer or creative to understand that many ideas based services are hesitant to pitch for work because it consumes an enormous amount of resources first of all um to pitch and there is that whole aspect of essentially giving away a substantial amount of work away for free. And yeah. you, it's like, you want us to solve your problem, kind of what, like 30%, 50% give you a taste? Well, no, most, most people, if adequately done well to solve a problem, will usually hit the mark and need to do all of the work (laughs) or at least a very solid amount of the top line work so what advice do you have for those looking to win new business without giving work away for free
0: well part of it is just emboldening yourself to stand up for yourself and um i mean saying no is such a big part of it just saying uh Say pushing back on flawed uh, selection or buying processes on the client side um I once one of one of the last pieces of business significant pieces of business I tried to close my agency career and we were successful it was from a large it was the world's largest retailer, and we were invited into this cattle call of uh five five design firms invited to pitch for a very large ah, not massive like a i guess a medium sized design um design project it was a packaging project and uh when i pushed back on the process i was told uh the client who was kind of not new to the company but she was in that new in that role she said hey i'm i'm not saying that what i'm asking is right we just we this is the way we do it nobody's ever said no so i was the first one to ever push back you know, in that she knew of and said, no, we weren't going to do things this way. So I asked for a series of concessions. I think I asked for five and I got three of the five concessions and we won the business. So saying no and getting concessions are really important because they're, um, when you can change, when you can get the client to change their behavior, not just the things that they're saying to you, but when they when they will do things differently for you in the sale, where they lay out a process and they say, we want everybody to follow this, and you push back and you get them to change some things, not for everybody, but for you, you get them to treat you differently, that's a sign that they see you differently. That's a sign that you are properly positioned. So at the at the very minimum, it's a, it's a reflection of kind of the current reality of how they see you. But there's even a possibility that you're doing something even greater that you're by getting them to treat you differently, you're getting them to start to think about you differently. So there might be some sort of causative role there where if you can get them to behave differently towards you, they'll start to think about you differently. And certainly the opposite is true. If they are behaving um. Uh, differently towards you than they are thinking about you differently. So, so it's really important for you to be able to say no uh, politely but firmly and to offer alternatives to the path forward that the client has laid out for you and say, well, instead of doing this, why don't we do this? Instead of me filling out all of this paperwork, why don't we just have a conversation? So very high level, that's some, some advice. Just start to say no. One of the win-without-pitching tenants is say what you think. So if the client is briefing you on a selection process and you think, well, this seems like a lot of work for us or a lot of busy work, or maybe you're not asking the right questions or you're asking for information that I can't really see how this would contribute to, you know, intelligent decision making about how to hire a firm like ours, then you should say those things. Now, you say them early, another tenant of ours is kind ruthlessness, where, um, So it's essentially the same thing. You say what you're thinking, but you say it early enough so that you don't let the emotions build up. So client asks you to do something you think doesn't make sense for you or doesn't make sense for them. Think about it just for a minute and make sure you can phrase it kindly and then push back and say, you know, how about we do this instead? Or I don't think that's such a good idea. Like one of the objections that I have our clients raise quite often is the line that we don't typically respond to RFPs or requests for proposals. So if a client calls and says, hey, I'm really excited, I've got this thing, it might be great for you. And you say, oh, fantastic, when do we start? And she says, not so fast, um, first I'll send you an RFP. Hmm. Then I would have you reply with the words, we don't typically re- respond to RFPs. And then just stop and enjoy the uncomfortable silence because whatever you hear next from the client, is going to be a great indication of how different you're seen to be, and how, and therefore, how much power you have in the buy sell process, and uh, how much power you have to push back and um, and change the the way you're going to decide whether or not you work together.
1: Yeah, I love that process uh, that you mentioned about uh, saying what you think. Um, I guess you know to some extent going with your gut and being um practical <laughs> about things um and yeah. then you said ruthless kindness or kind kind ruthlessness kind ruthlessness i love that and and a big one is the expectation component which is the uh say it early that you mentioned um because i think if a, a lot of problems uh that i've found um that arise later on in hindsight in my experience anyway could have been solved when i discuss issues before I even begin the job. Um, yeah,
0: if, if yeah. you have a concern about what the client's saying, and you don't bring it up, I mean, you have a professional obligation to bring it up, to voice that concern. If, you, if you're being briefed on something where you think, well, that's not the problem, or that's not the solution, you have a professional obligation to say so. Every other professional in the world does. Right? If you went into your cardiac surgeon's office and said, you know, I've got this pain in my chest, I think I need quadruple bypass surgery, and he said, okay, lie down, <laughs> um, he'd be liable for malpractice, right? So designers have the same professional obligation to diagnose before they prescribe and to validate a client's own self-diagnosis. So if you, the client is saying something that you don't think is true or, or you think it needs more explore, exploration, you have a professional obligation to lean into that and explore it more.
1: Yeah, it's a super good point. Uh, you mentioned proposals. Uh, I love that word because <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it goes back to the pitching thing because it's like, and I love it because it's, it's a topic that I, I, I want to talk about. Um, what do we need to consider to best position ourselves to win? Well,
0: I think the biggest challenge with positioning the firm is the idea, and I see this in a lot of creative firms, that, that you think of positioning the firm on a case-by-case basis to, on an opportunity-by-opportunity basis to individual clients. And positioning is more of a holistic, high-level thing. In fact, the word that we use, positioning, it came from the book, Posi- uh, Positioning um, the Battle for Your Mind, by Trout and Reese. And I think it was like 82 or somewhere around there where that book came out. And ever since then, in the creative professions, um, it was really a, a a term used to to describe the the uh, our clients, like our um, uh, brands. So the positioning of brands in the mind of the purchaser, and the name has really stuck in the creative professions as a word for strategy, fundamental business strategy. So where we talk about positioning ourselves, other businesses would talk about business strategy. And there are different definitions to the word strategy. It's actually one of those words that will drive you nuts if you think about it too much. And most people don't think about it enough. Um, uh, so I collect definitions, answers to the question, what is strategy? And the one that I like best is Michael Porters from uh, previously of Harvard Business uh, School. and he, So he's a consultant now, I think, and an author. And his... Definition of strategy is strategy is the answer to the question: How are we going to become and remain unique? So that is fundamental business strategy. So if you're a designer, if you own a design firm, you're you're constantly thinking. It's job one is to figure out what is the business strategy for this. What is the strategy for this business? How are we going going to become and remain unique? And we have you look at uh, positioning. Or strategy from uh, three different components. So, so, two primary and one secondary. And the primary components of positioning are, which together make up focus, are discipline and market. So, you should be able to say, We are, we do this discipline for that market. In fact, you should be able to claim some sort of leadership. We are the leading provider of this discipline for that market. So, those two elements, discipline and market, comprise of your focus. What, um, I think that's self-explanatory. Then the third element, or the, the secondary element, with a, um, would be perspective. Your overarching viewpoint on how this discipline for market should be done. So when, when a design firm is thinking about going out into the world with a, with a message, that message should be, we are leading experts of dis- X for Y, discipline for market. And that claim should separate you from the vast majority of other designers or design firms in the world. And let's say you get uh, through that claim, that focus, because it's that, that narrowing your focus into a discipline for market allows you to deepen your expertise. It's not the narrowing itself that's meaningful. It's the depth of expertise that comes from narrowing your focus. You start to look at the same types of problems over and over again. You start to see the patterns. You can see things that other people can't. You go deeper into the subject matter than other people do. That's where expertise comes from. So by narrowing your focus in a discipline for market, you should eliminate the vast majority of your competitors. And then your few remaining direct competitors and few remaining might be three, it might be 30, like it might be three or three dozen. From them, you separate yourself through your point of view, your perspective, your overarching viewpoint on how this X for Y should be done. And in that way, your perspective on how, so uh, we're, we're a sales training organization for creative professionals, the world's leading sales training organization for creative professionals. Our perspective is right there in the name, win without pitching, this idea that you can and should be able to win without pitching for free. Um, So if somebody's looking for sales training for creative professionals, they might consider us, and they might consider us not just training, we compete against consultants, so they might consider win without preaching versus a new business consultant. That perspective, overarching viewpoint of how we think this should be done is right there in our name. And when it comes to that final decision of us versus one of our um, few direct competitors, we should win or lose that battle based on ideology. That secondary battle between you and your few remaining direct competitors, you want to, if you position your firm properly, you'll make that battle one of ideology. Hmm. So um, most of our competitors don't actually believe that you can win without pitching on an ongoing basis. Most of them don't actually believe that. So it's an easy kind of polarizing view for us. But at the same time, there are many clients out there who might hire us who don't see free pitching as the problem or who don't believe, like some of our competitors, that you can win without pitching. So we lose all of those. All of those people who don't see free pitching as a problem or don't think that you can win without pitching, they go hire our competitors. But the ones who really want to win without pitching and really believe that it can be done, they almost always come to us. So that secondary battle becomes one of ideology.
1: Amazing. Amazing, thank you for uh, elaborating on that um it 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 definitely gives me personally a lot to think about uh, as well, I'm sure a lot of listeners when it comes to um, proposals, right? It's kind of like you can you can almost get to a quick "I want you to do the job um, by positioning yourself so clearly and strongly in a niche market. Um, yeah, just with, with how you describe that, um, that process, uh, of, of, uh, of course, and then expressing yourself in the relevant touch points, um, whether it's your website and your, your, any other marketing tools that you have, but, um, consistently expressing that, uh, positioning line and of course, backing that up with evidence, um, I think it's super important for everyone. When it comes to Mm -hmm. retainer clients, Blair, uh, you know, this idea of securing contracts for a certain period of time at an agreed regular fee, perhaps, uh, is this the type of work you would recommend that we should be spending our time and energy trying to win?
0: Um, I think so. I've got a new book. Out. It came out in uh, January of 2018, January 10th. It's called Pricing Creativity, a Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. And I have an entire chapter devoted to retainers. And I've always had a bit of a beef with not, not retainers necessarily, but with how creative firms use them. Uh, retainers are almost always cost-based rather than value-based, so you arrive at the amount of the retainer based on the amount of inputs, time and materials that will go into the relationship. That's problem number one I have with retainers. Problem number two is it's my experience that in most retainer relationships, one party is unhappy, and the one party is unhappy because uh, both parties enter into a cost-based retainer relationship thinking that Okay, let's say, um, let's say the retainer is priced at 100, 100 hours of activity per month at, uh, just to make it easy, $100 per hour. So there's $10,000 a month retainer, if my math is correct. Um, the, uh, the agency or design firm is happy when they spend less than 100 hours, and the client is happy when they get more than 100 hours of work. Out of the firm, and in the end, ideally, it all kind of balances out. But selling based on the input of time and materials—that's not the most ideal way, or the most profitable, or even the most beneficial to the client. It's not the best way to price. So I think in a lot of uh, a lot of creative firms, there's this idea that the the um, the retainer is kind of this nirvana of compensation models, and and it isn't. It rarely is. I mean, there are some. Businesses like PR firms, as an example, they would, they would uh, make sure every client is on a retainer. I don't think that's necessarily a healthy thing to do. Now, we all understand what the benefits of a retainer are it's visibility into your income way out into the future. Right. So I'm not, I don't want to just um, not acknowledge that there is a benefit there, but the cost, the trade offs are often just, just don't make it worth it. Um, So I think we, the chapter in the book is called Do Retainers Right? Um, So I talk about some of the things where, as I've just mentioned, some of the reasons you would consider retainers, some of the reasons why retainers don't make sense. And then ultimately, my recommendation is, I think retainers, the two forms of retainers that I like are retainers for strategic guidance. So high-level diagnosing, prescribing, maybe even like some high-level creative concepts, although that's a little bit difficult to do in That would be considered kind of strategic, but it's difficult to cover under a retainer relationship. I think a retainer with strategic retainer relationship is really a form of consulting. And the other form of retainer relationship that makes sense is when the client pays you a monthly amount to reserve capacity, the idea that they buy so many hours from you and you set aside so many hours and you use you bill those hours against that retainer, that's that's not, I mean, there are worse things you could do in your business. It's not a horrible thing, but it will really keep you from getting to the next level of profitability. Mm. And and ultimately, I think, as I've already said, I I think in most retainer relationships, one party's
1: unhappy. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, I do encourage everyone to uh, read Your book, Blair, and you mentioned uh, it's just uh, come out as we're recording this uh, Pricing Creativity, a guide to profit beyond the billable hour. And you talk about uh, distilling pricing theory into principles, rules, tips, and tools specifically for the creative professional. Uh, So, firstly, congratulations uh, on using that. And uh, secondly, a, a valiant task to tackle a topic constantly on the minds of creatives across the world. So what are some rules you can share to us to price creativity?
0: Yeah, so there are uh, six rules in the book. And so the principles, the first section of the book are principles, it's basically the distillation of economic and pricing theory into the few kind of foundational principles that you need to understand. And the number one is the idea, of the subjectivity of value. The value is not measured by the inputs that go into something, it's all value is personal. Different people value different things differently at different times. So uh, that's the foundational principle. There are others. Um, And then there are six rules. And rules, I say in the book, the rules are these are six things you should do every time. Every time you're pricing, uh, putting together a proposal, you should do these things. So the first three are really key. Um, They're all key, but the first three, if you just practice these three rules, you should increase, I think the average designer or design firm will increase their profitability by 50% or more just by following these three rules. Um, And the first one is to price the client, not the job. So it builds on that principle of the subjectivity of value. So this idea that every client values something differently means that if somebody says to you, what do you charge for a logo or a website, or whatever it is, you should not have an answer, because the answer is, well, it depends. It depends on all kinds of variables, and those variables might include a little bit of time and materials, like how long is it gonna take, but it really should, the variables should be, the key variables are the value that you will create for the client, disconnected from inputs of time and and materials. So you should just disabuse yourself of the idea that logos cost $10,000, or $5,000, or $50,000, or whatever, or even a range of five to 10. Um, and in the book, I give some examples of some very prominent logos that went from $200 to $1 million. So look, there's, an, there's an, almost an infinite range of what you could charge for something as simple as a logo or an identity. Um, so that's rule number one is price the client, not the job or the service. Rule number two is always offer options. Most proposals, if your proposal contains one solution, one price, it's essentially a take it or leave it proposal. And you don't want to be in this take or to leave it type relationship with your clients. You want to put some options in front of the client, and then facilitate the discussion around which option um, is the best value to the client. And you, um, when you put options in front of the client, you're actually enabling their brain to answer the question that it's wired to answer, which is which of these is the best value. When you put forward a one option proposal, take it or leave it let's say it's for $20,000, um, certain services and the price is $20,000, you're asking the client to answer the question, is this worth $20,000? Nobody can answer that question without context. You can't, um, and I prove this in the book, I can get you to see light is dark, dark is light, I can get you to think that wet is dry, that heavy is light, all of these things, because we can't, we can't perceive these uh values they're all subjective we we need contrast we need context to be able to determine a value so when you put a proposal in front of a client and say here's what we'll do and the price is $20,000 you're forcing them to go away either absolutely mentally and sometimes physically so that they can they can make the comparison they need to take that proposal and compare it against something they can compare it against what they've paid you previously um, but the most common comparison is we'll compare it against what we can get from another designer. And then they put those two, three, four proposals in, on the desk in front of themselves and they ask which of these is the best value. So why don't you just short circuit all of that and make sure that from this day forward, every time you put forward a proposal to a client, you will have three options, maybe four. There's a reason why three is better than two. Four is still good. Even five can be okay, but it gets a little bit tricky. So three or four options, and then uh, that allows you to control the comparison. So you don't force the client to go away. You're enabling them to answer the question their brain is wired to answer. The third rule in the book is to anchor high. And that means your third option, your most expensive option, is not there to be bought. It's there to make the other options look less expensive, and you always lead with the highest price option. So you might say to a client, after you get briefed on the situation, after what we call the value, or what everybody calls the value conversation, you go away, put together your proposal, you return for what I call the closing conversation, and you say, okay, I have three different ways that we can help you. Let me start with the first one, it's the most expensive one, and it might be three or four times what the client's stated budget is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not there to be bought. It's there. To, it's okay if the client chokes when they see the number <laughs> and you can preface it by saying we, we began by asking ourselves, what would we do if money were no object? What's, what's the most we could do for you? What's the best we could do for you? And here's what we came up with here. Are all these things. And I'm, I'm presenting this Mr. Client as a thought starter. I want you to see our thinking process and I want you to get some context. So here's what we would do and here's how much money it would cost. And they choke on that. <laughs> And then you can go to the, the middle option or the low-priced option. You can go to the low-priced option and say, now you mentioned your budget was X, $20,000. Here's what we can do for $20,000. And they can see the difference in the deliverables with the value drivers between those two options. And they think, okay, well, this is the budget I have, but I really want to do some of the things you talked about in your most expensive or anchor option. And then you can fill in the gap and say, now, for your Stated budget plus another twenty percent or twenty. We can do include these things, and so your your the anchor is there. It's the first number they should hear. It's there's all kinds of fascinating science behind anchoring. It's such a powerful principle that it works works on you even when you know it's being done. It's very hard to undo it as as more time goes by. Um, These behavioral economics uh, researchers are finding ways that people can undo the anchoring effect, but very almost nobody knows how to do this. Uh, They're really obscure. So, as an example, one thing is if you're anchoring high with me in a negotiation, you you give me a really high price. I can shake my head no and say, Ram, that that price is too high. And then another thing I can do is I can get you to throw it out and say, give me another price. The the worst thing that can happen is I counter because even my counter is going to be affected by the anchor and what all the studies show over, over multiple studies and multiple examples is the kind of the average, out, the outcome of the average price is going to be affected significantly by the anchor. So those three rules, price the client, not the job, always offer options and anchor high. Just follow those three rules. I'll bet you make 50% more profit from this day forward
1: mate i love it it's uh something that uh i've i've somewhat put into practice myself but the uh, in terms of uh price the um client not the job um i think uh you know people like andy Hoyne have brought to light for me that you are charging essentially what the client's outcome ideal outcome is so if the the client, let's, I mean, let's put it out there. Let's say you are, um, working with a solicitor or a law firm, you know, their, their clients are 10 X probably what I would usually be charging. Um, and, and I never thought it that way. I never thought about, hold on, what is what I'm doing going to contribute to the result of this particular, um, law firm, for instance. Um, yeah. it totally changed my view of like, hold on, the value I'm giving them is actually much more than this billable type of scenario that I'm always doing or I was doing before. Um, but I love what you said about the anchoring, and I think that is the that answers a lot of questions that I'm sure people would be having. When you said earlier, um, don't you know? Don't be afraid to say no, type of thing. It's kind of like, well, if you give them options and you anchor high, you are effectively uh, your Your minimum is actually um, your minimum sort of walk away point is doesn't doesn't look so bad for them because your maximum was actually <laughs> something that they should actually know in context
0: um, yeah, and through those tools you are you're creating the conditions for a great discussion right you've got these options you've got all these things on the table that you can talk about, and you can't have a great discussion like that or it's a lot it's a lot less likely you'll have a great discussion like that when you put forward a take it or leave it proposal
1: Mm. yeah very cool um and also there's the question um that i get a lot during q a's and um the the question i think that you would get a lot too is um this scenario where there's a prospective customer and then they've said I've looked around, and this is the best price we've been quoted uh, for. What, where after can you beat that price? You know, can you dive into that scenario a little bit more? Yeah,
0: if somebody <laughs> phrased that to me, my very direct response would be: um, if If you came to me thinking that you were going to get the best price, then I, I wish I'd known that a while ago. We could have just ended this conversation. Um, in one of the last, uh, jobs I had my agency career, I used to say, um, I used to say to prospects when we're talking about price, I used to say, we're the most expensive firm in the market. And if you find somebody who's more expensive, I'd like you to let me know.
1: <laughs> so
0: good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's pricing is positioning. Mm right there's all kinds of signaling wrapped up in a price about quality about confidence so it's just don't like there are you can take all buyers and there's more than two categories but you can put them into two different basic categories price buyers and value buyers and you know as soon as you get questions that indicate that this is a price buyer you should just be looking to end the conversation as soon as possible or call them out because there's this, Reed Holden, the author of some great books on pricing, has this great term, poker player buyers, and that's a, a value buyer who looks like a price buyer who's just negotiating hard. They make you think that they want the lowest price. They really want the best value, but they're going to negotiate hard. So you kind of end up in this poker game this, where you're trying to outbluff them. Um, so there is some middle ground there but you shouldn't be like that's a trap um uh an invitation to beat a price is an absolute trap that you should not fall into it should you should refocus the question on value um and just say to the client listen if you're i'm i'm sorry i wish i knew earlier that you were interested in the in the best possible price i just i wouldn't have invested in like the last 20 minutes in this conversation with you because i mean if if we are the lowest price i'll be shocked if we are the lowest price um, we probably have to raise our prices because if I'm the, if I'm the lowest price out there, then there's, something is wrong. Mm, yeah. So again, right. you're signaling quality and, and confidence and don't get sucked into that game. Uh, so logos are another funny thing. I said, you know, $200 to $1 million. I can give you examples in that range and, and everybody can think of examples that are both higher and lower. And let's say you quote a specific client, uh, $10,000 for a logo and they say, you know what, I can get a logo for $5,000. I like the response of, oh, you know what, there's this great website, it's called 99designs, you can get <laughs> logos, I'll bet you could get a logo for 50 bucks. Because if it's really about the the price, yeah, well, if a client says, I can get it cheaper, just one-up them, say, oh, you can get it even cheaper than that, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because if, if it's just price, you want That's the cheapest true. logo possible, in fact, Mr. Client, I'll bet you could get it for free. Yeah, you're doing a poor job. You could job. hold a design contest. You could go to design schools, whatever. Right. You could just post something on 99design, say, I'm not paying. But if you're an up-and-coming designer and you want to build the portfolio, I'll. if you design something I like, I'll use it and you get credit for it. Logos, you can get a logo for free.
1: Yeah, it's like you're doing a poor job of hunting for the cheapest price. Is actually... Uh, much cheaper than that,
0: <laughs> yeah, and you're not fighting the you're not fighting the price by our client who's trying to grind you down on price. I can get it cheaper. Well I can get it for four point five x. Oh no, no, you can get it for 005 x <laughs> If that's really important to you. I'll show you how to get it for free.
1: it's true, yeah, <laughs> exactly. so you've mentioned that your not so much an expert in selling as you are in the peculiarities of the creative personality that makes selling difficult for people in an ideas business. So can you share some specific areas of creative personalities that you've uncovered, which may hinder the ability to sell their value?
0: Yeah, good question. So, um, it is the nature. So creativity is not the ability to draw or write. Creativity, as as defined by uh, Mahay Chiksent Mahay, who wrote the book called Flow, and he coined the term this flow state, that state where you are your happiest, your most creative. Um, and time seems to both speed up and slow down at the same time. You're pushed out towards the edge of your abilities. You've, you're, you feel a sense of mastery. You're pushing yourself, but you're not beyond your limits. You're still in control. Um, and so he says, yeah, creativity is the ability to see. It's the ability to bring perspective to problems, that, uh, perspective that others can't. So to be creative means to see solutions to problems that others cannot. To see ways of thinking, to think about problems in ways others cannot. So if that's you, if you're a creative person, then you are drawn to the problem that you have not previously solved. You're drawn to new and different problems. You have this wide variety of interests, and you're always thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? Ooh, wouldn't it be cool if we did that? So your own personal, you have this really high personal need for variety, but your business In order for your business to benefit, you need to narrow your focus and solve the same types of problems over and over again so you can start to see the patterns and you can actually build true expertise. So the fundamental sales problem is really one of positioning, the fact that creative firms have very little power in the buy-sell relationship because they have let their personal need for variety trump their business's need for focus. So owners of creative businesses all the time, it's not nearly as bad as it was when I was starting out 15 years ago as a consultant, but owners of creative businesses have all these ridiculous rationales for why they shouldn't focus, for why they should remain generalist. And they're all personal, person driven by personal motivation, this personal need for variety, because they think that once they narrow their focus, um, their business is going to bore the hell out of them. The idea of solving the same problems over and over again. And the metaphor I I use, I talk about this in my first book, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, is you are standing in a room full of doors and being a highly kind of interested, curious, creative person, you want to know what's behind every door. You want to open every door and solve the problem that's behind every door. And I'm standing behind you and I'm saying, no, you need to pick one door, open it up, walk through it, and never ever look back. <laughs> and you think that on the other side of that door is just one long, dimly lit, boring gray hallway where surely you will suffocate from boredom. That's, what, that's your concern as a creative person. But that's not what's on the other side of that door. What's on the other side of that door is more doors. And I like to joke, not more door, More doors, (laughs) more doors than you can ever imagine. You crawl into these niches, these crevasses, these tiny little holes, and they open up into these massive worlds like Narnia. But you don't see that when you're standing there in that one room looking at all the doors. You think, if I need to build a business that lets me go behind every door. If you do, you will suffer. You will suffer economically. In the long run, your emotional health will suffer. There are some exceptions. The most creative people in the world can build businesses where they get to do all kinds of different things. Um, A very, very small number of people can pull that off. The rest of us, you need to pick a door, you need to walk through it, and you need to trust me that once you get through that door, which is kind of a narrower, focused positioning for your business, all kinds of other doors will open up and it'll be really interesting. (laughs) That's the big challenge.
1: Yeah, I think you just pulled on the heartstrings of every single listener, um, including myself, because even when I started this, this being Giant Thinkers uh, five and a half years ago, I started off with the positioning line that I had, Blair, is until this day is the same expert advice for emerging designers to be employed. Um, and I do that through the books and then this podcast and um, speaking events, etc. But uh, I always kind of every year that passes, I'm like, "Ooh, can I expand into that, or should I, <laughs> should I expand yeah. into this area here?" Because you know, someone wrote in and they're resonating with what I'm saying, and they're not even a designer or, ooh, yeah. But I've been advised to to stay and to <laughs> to keep my niche, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's a, yeah. Um, I used to hear the line all the time that. Um, uh, designers, especially young designers, in in uh, just building their practice, they would want to broaden out their client base because they didn't want to be pigeonholed. Right. And I would say, well, the pigeonholes are stuffed with cash. <laughs> that's what. That's where the opportunity is in the pigeonholes.
1: That's true. That's true. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. What What do you say to people like that? You know, where where they go? But I'm just going to dive boredom. You know, that's the, that's the fear, isn't it? It's like, there's no newness. It's like, ah, oh, it's the daily grind. Yeah. And there are
0: some businesses and some niches where maybe that gets a little bit boring. And we talk about Andy Hoyne and, you know, in, in his very successful firm, their primary focus is property, but they still have Hoyne brands. They still have the generalist firm. And it, Andy may have said this, I didn't listen to the podcast, but, um, That generalist brand is there to keep his creative people interested, to allow them um, uh, opportunities to work on outside of property development. Mm.
1: Yeah, totally. So there
0: there are ways to address that concern, and Andy's Andy's chosen a great one.
1: A few more questions for you, Blair. Uh, There is. Uh, this wonderful talk that you gave, it's online for people to watch uh, on YouTube. It was at the inbound conference. I think it was hosted by HubSpot. And if I may just give a bit of context here, you said that uh, your customers are human beings. So besides economic drivers, they're going to make their decision based on emotional drivers and some examples you gave were that they may make decisions based on your prestige, they may make decisions based on how you make them look to their boss. Uh, how much work you'll be able to take away from them to make their life easier, I guess, um, how much peace of mind you are going to be able to deliver to them. And they'll make decisions based on a risk equation. Are you a high risk option or a low risk option? Uh, and Blair, you, you said that you realized that all value is subjective when you saw that emotional contributions to value, are magnifiers of economic value, uh, which I love, love that phrase. Um, So my question is, what are some tried and tested examples that come to mind to help us influence the emotional drivers of our prospective customers?
0: It's it's a really good question. And it's a really nice summary of of, um, what I was talking about at that point in that speech. I'll just... I think I can tackle it all with one piece of advice, and that is in the sale, when you're uh, trying to uncover what it is that the client needs, start with what, forget about what the organization needs, the stated, don't forget about them completely, but just put them aside for a minute and focus on what the human being that you're talking to wants. If you can get, there's this, uh, there's this approach in sales, and I used to teach it, and it's called the five whys approach, where you ask the question why five times, and it's usually a client comes to you with some sort of stated tactical need. I need a new website. Why do you need a new website? Well, because the old one sucks. Why do you think the old one sucks? Because it doesn't do this. Why isn't doing that? et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then by asking these whys, you should get to the underlying business need. And I, one day I realized that uh, if you have to ask five whys, your first question was a pretty shitty one. So there's gotta be a better way to do this. And the better way to do this is to find, there's all kinds of different ways you can ask the question. I talk about a really great one in the book, but um, get to the question of what it is the client wants. Like what, what do you, Madam Client, what would make you happiest? at the end of this engagement? And again, there's all kinds of different ways and subtle ways you can answer the question, but just, if you can just focus on the human being and what this person wants above and beyond what the corporate needs are. So the human wants trump corporate needs every time, and I guarantee you, maybe guarantee is a strong word, but the the likelihood that your competitors who are also under consideration for this job, the likelihood that they will uncover what it is that the human being wants is really low. So if you can do that, you have a significant competitive advantage. And then when you start framing your solutions back to the client, you are never forgetting that she is looking for a solution that will help her in addition to achieving these corporate objectives of hitting sales targets or launching a website or etc. will hit her personal needs of freeing her up or prestige or Uh, low risk, or getting promoted, whatever these other things are. Now you have to be careful about working personal wants and the benefits that are tied to them into proposals or prices, But so it's really messy. But just focus on that. Make sure you remember that the wants of the individual, the human, Trump, the needs of the organization. And she will rationalize in her own mind why it makes sense for her to spend more on your solution um, when you can get her personal wants met.
1: Yeah. Powerful stuff. Thank you uh, for that, Blair. Uh, Now, a question I ask all my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to your junior self, perhaps the Blair finishing high school, what would you tell him?
0: Yeah, I get this question a lot these days and I'm um, same same answer. I would say to myself, "Beware of old men pretending you to be you from the future." <laughs> <laughs> and then my young self would probably say to me, "Can I swear on this podcast?" No.
1: Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: No. My young <laughs> self would probably say to me, "Fuck off, old man." <laughs> and I would smile and say, "Well done, kid."
1: i love i love the uh the, the dialogue there that was good i wouldn't give my younger self any
0: advice there you go i would just say you're doing great keep doing what you're doing that's it no matter what i was doing no matter what ridiculous i would just say you keep you're great keep going
1: Fantastic. Uh, who would be an impactful giant thinker in your life? That person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential?
0: Uh, when I, whenever I think I'm like overwhelmed, I'm working too much, I'm Attempting too much. I just think of Elon Musk. Oh, and yeah. then I think, okay, <laughs> you're not working hard at all. You're not making a difference at all, Blair. Get back to work. I'm a huge Elon Musk fan. I'm a Tesla owner, have been for about a year and a half. And it's, um, I just, uh, his flamethrowers are on sale this week. And it's, I don't need a flamethrower, <laughs> but it's all I can do to not buy a flamethrower because <laughs> wherever he's going, I want to go. I find him so incredibly inspirational. There is no barrier or obstacle that he cannot overcome. I'm just so inspired by the man. So I just, I wanted to support him. So I bought the car and, um, yeah, and I'm tempted. It's really hard for me to not buy the (laughs) flamethrower.
1: (laughs) It's those, uh, emotional drivers in action right there. Right. So you are supporting him and, and his. uh, his products and and his mission uh very cool um now what's next for you blair with everything you're involved in for this year and beyond
0: well this is 2000 the beginning of 2018 we're still recording this in late january um i'm actually headed to australia in 10 days to do a speaking tour for agda and then i'm doing a one-day workshop after that Uh, There's information on my website, winwithoutpitching.com, about that. I'm I'm not sure if this will air before that or not. Um, And I'm spending most of 2018 on as many stages as I can get to speaking about uh, primarily pricing, but also the other related subjects of selling creative services. So that's really my focus for 2018.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Yes, this, this should go out... After, unfortunately, but um, uh, it'll be a nice follow-up for, for the people uh, that do well, see Well, if you weren't there, you missed
0: some great lectures.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I'm looking to, uh, to catch up with you when you do visit uh, in Sydney. Uh, so, looking forward to that. Um, and how can listeners get in touch with you online, Blair?
0: So, I'm at winwithoutpitching.com. The book, Pricing Creativity, is you can only buy it at pricingcreativity.com. Um, and I'm Blair Ends B L A I R E N N S on with sorry with two ends on Twitter and LinkedIn.
1: Awesome, I'll uh, definitely put those links up. Blair, thank you so much for your time, mate. I wish you uh, continued success on a on a subject that uh, is so powerful um and and so needed in in today and tomorrow (laughs) and uh, i wish they would have had this subject uh when i was in high school you know it would have saved me a decade of guessing um so (laughs) i wish you uh continual fulfillment in, in everything that you do and uh i'll be certainly following you on your journey
0: thank you ram i hope we get to see each other in a couple of weeks
1: cheers mate bye Thank you for hanging out with me on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to Blair if anything in particular resonated with you. As he mentioned, he is at Blair Ends on Twitter, or you can connect with him on LinkedIn. Now a little teaser for our next guest. He is a former host of Getaway, which is actually Australia's longest running travel and lifestyle TV program, appearing for almost 400 episodes over eight years. He's hosted The Logies Red Carpet, game shows, reality TV, live events, celebrity interviews, and plenty more. A highly respected Aussie TV and radio superstar, and in the digital space, he is widely known as the founder of global influencer marketing platform Tribe, which connects brands with micro-influencers. I'm pumped for you all to hear this, it'll be out very soon. Now, before you race off, a quick reminder to check out Blinkist. They've solved our challenge of wanting to read our long wish list of books that we haven't had time to get around to yet. And they've done this by taking thousands of the world's best-selling non-fiction books and distilling them down to their most impactful elements so we can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes, all on your phone. I personally like to listen to Blinkist in the morning, during breakfast, or when I'm walking about to get some fresh air. The beauty is, you can listen during whatever time and place is most convenient to you. Now, The Blinkist library is massive, from classics like Think and Grow Rich, to bestsellers like Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, and all books by Tim Ferriss. My personal recommendation is to check out Start With Why by Simon Sinek and The 7 Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from best of lists, so you're always getting the most powerful ideas. 5 million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time, and you can too. So to start you off, they have a generous offer of 25% off for the Giant Thinkers listeners, if you head to giantthinkers.com Blinkist, you can start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan when you join today. If you do decide to purchase the yearly plan to be completely transparent, it works out to be $5 a month, huge value. Once again, that's giantthinkers.com slash Blinkist. That's giantthinkers.com slash B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Head there to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. The 25% off is automatically applied when you head to giantthinkers.com slash Blinkist. Now for any questions or queries, the best way to reach me is on Snapchat or Instagram. Send me a message via my handle at The Giant Thinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I love from Blair who said, "The fundamental sales problem is one of positioning. The fact that creative firms have very little power in the buy-sell relationship is because they have let their personal need for variety trump their business's needs for focus."